0: If Rishi rings you tomorrow and says, I want you to be my Minister for Innovation to make UK PLC the the great innovator in the world, what are you going to do?
1: What's your plan?
2: He didn't prep you for that, didn't he?
1: (laughs) So you're aware of the announcements coming out tomorrow about this? Welcome to the
0: podcast, Mark Evans-Smith. So, Mark, do you want to just for for watchers, listeners, do you want to introduce yourself, who you are, and what you do?
1: Um. So yeah, my name is Mark Evans Smith. Uh, so currently, I uh, I consult. I've got my own consultancy. Uh, I'm one of the founders of the Edge here in Hull as well, which is which is really exciting. Um. And I advise on innovation into a number of multinationals, including most, I suppose, most recently BP. Uh. Prior to that, I was the uh, platform and capability director for GSK, which I suppose that gave me a global opportunity to look at how GSK or Halion, as it was when I left, how they engage with the startup community um, and how we use the startup community to answer our own questions and challenges. And also how we educated ourselves on things like, I suppose, API, lovely acronym. But the reality is when you think about how you access data from the outside world or into applications, but also how you can get startups to ultimately allow access into your own systems so they can start to help you to, to move more rapidly with regards to response. Mm. Uh, and then latterly at GSK, we built the first mental health application that they had, uh, and then launched it in the U S with a partner, which was, which is amazingly exciting and something I'd never done before. Uh, and then prior to that, I was the, uh, global director for ecosystem and partnership at Rolls-Royce. Um, so I was given a, given an amazing opportunity, um, to, to take us a, a skill known as being a maven, a relationships manager, um, and sort of lead Rolls-R Royce uh, squared from that standpoint. Um, That was exciting. It was about bringing entrepreneurialism in, which we did. It was about bringing startups and scale-ups in to try and, again, help to eradicate the challenges or at least enhance the speed at which they resolve them. Um, We brought in VC funding. So one of the very first organizations I've worked with that managed to get VC funding to come in. So we worked with a, a Bulgarian VC called Brightcap, Um, and we work with technology organizations, but in a, in a collaborative way. So rather than a a tech company selling us something off the, off the shelf, we'd actually work with them on challenges that mattered to us and look at how we collectively commercialized them and took them to market. Mm. And that was one of the most exciting things. So I think, you know, when you look at big corporates, early stage discovery through to sort of, okay, let's look at value drivers and let's look at commercialization to then launch, you know, that was one of the most exciting things. And I think as part of the team that I was in. Um, which was ably led by Caroline Gorski. Um, we delivered about 200 and plus million pounds during the period I was there, which is about 18, 20 months.
0: Amazing. Um, wow. Yeah. One of the things you, you seem very good at, which is is creating kind of ecosystems and bringing value from across that ecosystem, which I know is something you're, kind of, you're doing with the Edge Hub as well. And we will mm-hmm. we'll get on to that in a second, but I wanted to just jump on, if I may, on kind of recent news around silicon valley banks i know funding is something that you you're invest you know, you're invested in in every sense yeah um so i just wanted to see your view on that in terms of i guess what what led to that situation and and is this the beginning of the end of that kind of big tech bubble that's happened i guess over the last few years or um is it the beginning of the what was in 2008 the kind of financial crash or have
1: we have we got past that so there's a lot of points that come out of that so i suppose the first point is if you think 2008, 2009, and you think about the startups that came out of that, nine times out of 10, in fact, no, 10 times out of 10, when we have a crash, we get a unicorn mm. or five or six. So so I think sometimes there's there's a the repercussions for these things, but I think there's major positives that come out of it as well. And I'm always a big advocate. You know, when people talk about recessionary environments, I think that's when startups and scale-ups happen. Opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, you've got big corporates. They lay off lots of people. Those people are superstars, they're there mm-hmm. for a reason. So they go and they do something better. To your SVB, v, uh, VB point, I worked with them extensively at Rolls-Royce and I thought they were, they were at the time, they were really fantastic from the perspective of support into the startup space. They helped us gain access from a corporate environment into the startup ecosystem. I mean, they banked 90%, I think, of the deal flow that you could get access to across the US. Um, so from the perspective of their approach to the startup community, I don't think it's rivaled anywhere. Um, I think the reality of their position from a financial standpoint and why they failed, um, I was listening to an article, sorry, uh, 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 the radio this morning, Radio 4 actually, and I think it was the chair of NatWest Group who actually said quite clearly that the board of uh, Silicon Valley Bank would never get a role within any major bank within the UK or any of the majors in the US and i think that just simply comes down to a failure to appropriately manage risk they've not had a risk manager for or a risk officer for 12 months something mm-hmm. like that so that's financial suicide isn't it you you know everybody would expect if i put my shares with you and you were my broker i'd expect you to to hedge your bets manage for risk one of a better phrase yep. yeah so i think it's it's a level of incompetence at board level, if I may say that, I'm being critical of an environment that I don't know a huge amount, but yeah. realistically, you know, when the, the the group chair of NatWest is saying, it, I'm fairly confident he knows what he's talking about. Um, as for them as, a, as an organisation, they've been picked up, I think, by HSBC for a pound, but will obviously support those investments. Um, I know a number of organisations I work with. I was one of the, the founding group of Biocortex, and, and I spoke to the team there to just check. They pulled their money out, I think. Wednesday Thursday last week so a lot of people it out but I think the other side of these things is and the media I think have a lot of, of responsibility here you know you you start to speculate on a potential failing of a bank you create a run on a bank, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, absolutely an hour later the bank's gone mm. so I think we do need to be realistic about the way in which we publicize these things I also think there's a piece on the recession you know, uh, Antonio and I talked about some of the investors that we're engaging with and some of the, the the clients that we've got. And the anxiety rate from December through to February was huge, all on the basis of, of forecasting against what the media have speculated to be a recession. No one seems to have felt it yet. There are different signs, I grant you, but... I do think there's been a level of naivety for the the level of of sort of threat that they've put out there to the marketplace. Do
0: you think we've averted that crash? Then that this isn't a Lehman Brothers. This is HSBC coming in and and rescuing it, potentially Haven't save they that. Only
2: do you rescued think? the UK arm. Well, that's good.
1: Yeah. Good so at this stage, yeah. that's my understanding as well. Yeah. Um, and I think have we have they averted it? I think the reality is there's 239 billion worth of liquidity in the market at this moment in time. Mm. I think the uh, liquidity that didn't sit within SVB was based on poor investment and and that happens. I think one of the other challenges that that we'd look at in that space is their customer base was very, very high on investment level. So, you know, in the US, you've got protection up to about $250,000. Here, I think it's up to about 80, £86,000, mm, something like yeah. that. So where you've got small level investment, They add 10% of their portfolios at that level. The rest of it's higher. You know, the Mm. startup I talked about had circa 4 million invested. So if you sit and think, what are we going to do and how do we move that kind of money? You know, are we going to lose startups? Yes, I think we probably will. I think some will hemorrhage, some will lose uh, liquidity, which means ultimately they're going to cause operational failure. But there is something else that comes out of that. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about at the moment is... I see lots of startups and many of those startups get given funding to do a POC, for example, in a corporate when actually they should be allowed to die. And that's not because they're not good. The talent within that startup is fantastic, but it doesn't mean we should allow startups to limp along for three years. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the reality is support them, engage with them. But if not, what about extracting that talent? And if you're the VC, go in and look at the talent, extract it out, put it in one of your other startups, make that better, you know, but allow another one to die. And- People say that's a negative attitude, but it's not because that talent could be super successful somewhere else, but it might only have a media opportunity here.
2: We were only saying in a, a, a recent podcast that, that hasn't gone to air just yet, but it, from a sales point of view, lose quickly, which ultimately is what we're saying here, yeah. is actually, let's not let it, like you said, Mark, limp along for a couple of years and at the end go, do you know what? This isn't going to fly, is it? It's yeah. let's get to a certain point and go, yeah, we've hit a milestone we haven't got the traction that we thought we'd get. As you say, then what can we do? And we we mentioned, you know, off air um, around you know uh, Fang and things like that, and all of the recent job losses, tens of thousands of ta- pieces pieces people, talent that are now probably going to start going into that you know startup environment and start adding value in in other in other areas. And and it is that lose you know ultimately what we're saying is lose quick. And then let other startups benefit by taking some of that talent to yeah. move theirs,
0: accelerate theirs. Yeah. So how, how are they propped up? Is that subsidies from government? What what props up a, a bad so, startup?
1: So it, it can be anything from R&D credits. It can be government grants. It can be POC activity. So sometimes you'll pay a startup thirty five to £50,000 to do a POC activity mm. with you. That's fine, but only if at the end of that activity, there's a contractual or commercial arrangement that you're going to have with that company. Because, you know, if I look at some of the stuff we did at, at Rolls-Royce, and this was actually down to a guy called Patton, um, Fizan Patankar, who used to work for me. Fizan actually is now the CEO of Amigda. He learned a tremendous amount as part of the R-squared community and then took it forward and developed his own startup. And that's not down to just... R-squared is down to him being an Mm. absolute superstar. But at the same time, if you look at the uh, approaches that were had in our organization, we would go out we would look for startups that could engage with us. Then we look for VCs that would bring startups in their own portfolios and invest in them to answer our challenges, mainly because you answer a corporate's challenge, get a contract, Mm. that value at your next round of funding makes you exponentially more valuable. Really good. However, you come and do a POC fantastic giving you 50k but you fail or we actually were doing it for what i call innovation tourism it's a waste of time so that startup was never going to be able to move forward and if they can't move forward commercially then you're going to put a lot of people under a great deal of strain and great deal of risk for 12 to 18 months to develop something that's never ever going to get traction so i think whilst I think those that have an opportunity should be hugely supported. Mm. And I think the government, like R&D tax credits, I think is a fantastic thing, but actually can be negative, if it allows you to limp a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's kind of supporting them in the best way. And I've, but I do think one of, the, one of the things that Antonio and I share, and one of the things that makes me passionate about our relationship is skills. So one of the points I made to the corporates I'm working with at the moment is, if you could, uh, if you could go and find a startup that could fix a problem that you've got, but your own team can't, what's the problem? And they're going, well, we just weren't able to find that capability. Mm. You No, not really. Because if you go and you map the skills of that team and then consume their services as a subscription, actually you're then able to create your own team that could have created it. So think about startups and think about skills and development. And we talk about, you know, upskilling in the SME space. So take somebody out of the offices and, and give them coding background or something. Well, that's great, but it's no different. Corporates are exactly the same thing. Mm. You know, from a digital culture perspective, corporates they don't have it. They have to bring it in. You know, and, and I think it's there's so much that can be done to support startup, and that could be ingest it into an existing corporate organisation as a department, allow them to be broken down and deployed into other startups in your portfolio. There's, there's a lot that could be done.
0: What are the common, you obviously work with many startups, as you say, so what what are the common traits that you see in in successful startups versus the ones that do fall away eventually?
1: Um, so I think successful startups are effectively prepared. So, and that means that you have an understanding, not just of your technology stack, mm. but the reality is, and I hate to say this, but a lot of the academics that I engage with sit there and say, sales is easy, marketing is easy, etc. <laughs> Whereas I sit there and I say, you cannot move a startup anywhere without a commercial understanding, you know, and I myself was in a, a startup not too long ago and I said, let's look at simple things, yeah, business model canvas, value mm. prop canvas. Yeah. Why? Because we can come back to it, we can model it, we can work out what's happening. And the the senior academic in the, in the business who was very technically gifted um, said, no, we're not going back to that biggest mistake they made and now they're paying an agency a fortune because they've got money now to actually do it for them so it's commercial understanding is critical to start with understanding your market which sits within that piece absolutely critical but also go to market value proposition so really what we would call quite simplistic you know operational don't start before you know it type Mm. stuff i think that's that's the biggest failing i see because i see some fantastic um you know We work with an AI company at the moment that's using RPPG technologies, which, forgive me, but ultimately uses AI to scan the face and look at blood flow Mm. and make predictions on your vital statistics. Yeah? Superb team. Absolutely superb. But no funding yet. Marketing isn't where it should be. Building of a deck isn't where it should be. The ability to go to market understanding the most appropriate segment to go into is not quite there yet. So they're looking at automotive, but also medical and clinical. So it's just... Taking that time to make sure that even if it's an advisor that's really commercially strong, or a CFO, or a sales director, somebody that can come in and give you give you that guidance, that would be my feeling.
0: Hi guys, just jumping in. I want to talk about one of the services we offer, which is robotic process automation, also known as RPA. That is software that replicates human behavior. So if you've got people downloading spreadsheets, attaching them to emails, going on portals, downloading information, moving data around. All that stuff is perfect for a robot. So if that's interesting, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Let's see if we can help. Enough from me. Back to the conversation. How do we bring those two things together? Because I'm surrounded by businesses on this business part, alls included, I think, that are, that are strong commercially, strong sales, and would love to join up with startups from an academic background that have got great ideas but need that kind of commercial help. So how how do we make
1: that happen? How does government make that happen? So there's so there's a couple of things you can do, I think. So and and it's 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 a bit old hat this is, but I still think they work. So one of the things that I I we talk about and I talk to corporates about is innovation challenges. Right. Now, innovation challenge in a in a nutshell is think of a theme that you think actually if we could get into that theme and understand it more from a technical perspective, yep. we could build a proposition around it. If you launch that and bring in technologists, more startups and scale ups to actually Look at what they can provide. It might not cost you a lot of money, 30 grand, 40 grand, whatever it is. But actually, from that, you can really deliver value. Mm. i give you a really simple example. We invested 50, 55,000 pounds when I was at Rolls-Royce in a startup to come and help us do something. And what that was, was um, we had thousands and thousands and thousands of records, which were PDFs. So simple um, paper documents held in, um, massive secure sites. How do you take a document of that form and put it into a structured data set so you can run analytics across it to work out whether or not you've implemented the contract effectively?
0: We but, could help you with this mark here okay, we go right <laughs> two years too late there you go
1: <laughs> but, but for us yeah so it was ocr technology yeah. as you well know so um ocr technology of a pdf pdf extracts the data and we deploy an algorithm across it and say actually did you know the terms of this contract weren't applied in year one year two three four's gone they owe us x amount in a quarter we saved 18 million pounds right that's how quick it was now the reality was we then as a team the AI team actually based out of London, um, and they looked at it and said, could we take it further? So for example, when you build a uh, an aero blade, you're building it out one big block of alloy. When you t- send that to a mill, they make the blade, and then there's waste. So how much is the waste worth? Mm-hmm. How do you really know? Well, you go to so weight, the weight, put it on the ground, give us money for the weight. Actually, what about building a replica, so a digital twin of it? So build a digital twin pre and post and then you can give exact amounts. That forecasts are about half a billion in savings. So when you think about simple innovation challenge, because you're 50 grand, you got 25 different applicants that came in. We found one and they delivered that. So that to me is a perfect model of doing
2: it. I'm I'm intrigued, um, and uh, I'll go as far as probably say, impressed in that, is that the norm, Mark, that big corporations like Rolls-Royce, are doing that. So I'm guessing R squared was the vehicle for bringing all these startups into add very quick value and sizable returns. Yeah. Is that the norm? Because I'll be honest, that that's the first I've heard of a big, you know, because often you hear corporates are like these big super tankers that take forever to change. Granted, if you have the right... Personnel involved that can be
1: quicker, but is that the norm? It- so, so I would say um, no, it's not. Um, we were very lucky. Um, I think anybody who was associated with R squared or R squared Factory, as it is now, has to probably put a lot of the success of that behind um, a lady called Caroline Gorski. Who Caroline is very much focused on influence and her ability to influence a board level and into other corporates and into um, other areas and themes, even through to ethical AI um, and re- the release of the Aletheia framework. It's kind of, it's making sure people see what you're doing is value. One of the things that she did, which drove the appetite, I think, of Rolls-Royce was to work on the basis of getting her team, um, at, at me included, because I was a direct report of hers. How do we create a process that puts value against this? So we create something called the VDO, and the Value Delivery Office, basically. And the reason being is because often people look at innovation as innovation tourism. So we're going to do this because we just want to say we do innovation. And that, that's no point lying about it. That's exactly what many corporates do. Mm. However, if you can link what you're doing to true value, suddenly the CFO comes in and says, right, okay, this is something we want to invest in. And we see more than one, two, three years, because most innovation factories, innovation environments last about three years, because that's how much patience people have got pretty Mm -hmm. much. So when you start to deliver this type of saving, it suddenly starts to make a difference and you can start to look at other angles. Now, many organizations for the wrong reasons use compliance, for example, as a reason why they won't engage with the outside world. You know, if you're in Rolls-Royce, you've got Rolls-Royce Defense, you've got Rolls-Royce Aerospace, ultimately, mm. and then you can move into subs and, and other areas, most of which has got high levels of compliance because it's government or military, and they're going, it's difficult to innovate. That's complete nonsense because the reality is, if you look at things like Tempest, Tempest is a program to create the next ultimate fighter. And the whole program was built on bringing in innovation to accelerate the way the MOD works, so they're already telling you that they want to work that way. Um, one of the guys who led innovation for defence, uh, Alastair Donaldson, who um, uh, Antonio was talking about, is now part of Hirok up here. You know, they've taken somebody who has tremendous expertise working one of the largest multinationals in the world to bring real high-speed innovation. And he knew he knows exactly what he's doing, Alastair. That's absolutely about saying corporates have the the funds to do it, but the appetite isn't there as well if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think one of the points, you know, um, that I would always make to, to SMEs is you look at somebody that had, let's say a senior role within a multinational and you think, yeah, but you've got budget, you've got this, you've got that. Well, actually I have got budget, but then I've got bureaucracy mm. and I've got compliance yeah. and I've got anti entrepreneurialism <coughs> Literally I have. And the reason I was brought into Rolls Royce is not because I'm an academic. It was because I nearly 30 years pretty much in sales. And beyond that, I was a maven. So it was all about relationships and I was expendable. That was the whole point of me going in. I had a two year remit pretty much to do as much disruption as possible. And we did, and we made, you know, we made a massive impact. We built a strong reputation um, and we ended up getting an entrepreneur in residence. So we got a guy called uh, Simon Devonshire OBE to sit on our board and advise our board on entrepreneurialism. So we did some amazing things. bit of a fluffy answer to does everybody do it no 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 no, no,
0: no no i think for some businesses it's it's understanding the art of the possible a lot of the time they don't realize that innovation exists that can help them solve a problem that they've got cuz problem a lot of the time they don't even know that it's a problem yeah so how how, how do you get businesses to cuz they're so consumed with the day job a lot of the time how do you how can they step away from that and look across their organization and think actually there's an opportunity here here and here or a problem here here and here that could be solved
1: so it's a really interesting question, actually. And I think fundamentally it comes down to time. So if you're not willing mm-hmm. to give yourself time, you know, if you're the founder of a business, you're the founder because you're an entrepreneur. You are obviously very talented. You're also an innovator because of what you've been able to do. Mm. Um, there's, there's a great example that, that, um, I was given not too long ago, which was around Caradice and Caradice make, um, really expensive, very high quality, uh, saddlebags for cyclists. Um, which I found quite intriguing and I didn't know where it was going to go. And then the, um, the commercial director of the business actually came up with an idea that they needed to look at a different methodology. So they were saying upcycling seems to be something that's relatively interesting. Let's look at what we can do to upcycle. So they looked around the manufacturing site and said, There's no, we couldn't because we're very, very lean on what we do. Mm. Um, and the, the story goes that he had a conversation with a haulier. And if you know the size of skirts and the size of a haulage wagon, um, he looked at them and said, actually, could we do something with those? So he took the sides off when they'd been used for a certain period of time, took the seatbelts out of the uh, wagons because mm-hmm. they have to be replaced after a certain period of time and created UPSO. Now, UPSO, are well, bags that you see students carrying around universities, which basically look like something you should have a wetsuit in, <laughs> but, right, it's one of the most high margin areas. They weren't looking for that, but they were trying to do something different and they were trying to come up with a a, and we always label it innovation but they were trying to come up with something so upcycling gave them the the appetite let's say to go and see whether they could do something with their existing capabilities and then move that forward but i think everybody at the moment i think sustainability is driving innovation in the respective i think it's nescafe have said we're going to do a a premium coffee that's actually out of the husks of the coffee beans that we grind okay great idea but Where's that gonna go? But the point is, everybody's looking at something yeah. else. You know, mm. if it's waste, how do we use it? Bread manufacturer, breadcrumb, breadcrumb, sell breadcrumbs. You know, it's not mm. rocket yeah. science. Um, but it does come down to time. If you haven't got time to think about that, you're never gonna do it, you know? And and I think that's the that's the other piece. But it um one other example which I was intrigued by, um, a manufacturer who, a friend of mine, lead manufacturing for, for Toyota. And he was saying that one of the most intriguing things for him was they looked sort of down their supply chain to see how they could assist. And one of the things was, you know, when their like manufacturing line equipment gets to the end of life, which might be 10 years for them, but somebody mm-hmm. else might use it for 40, they actually made it available really, really cheaply because it had gone through its, its life. So then deploying high-end engineering equipment into a SME suddenly revolutionized them innovation so it's trying to look at how you change the whole approach of your business rather than i think just saying let's just look around for because it's really difficult you know you look around you can't really see the wood for the trees yeah. yeah um and i do like times when people say let's take the team out of the office for the day and people go that's just ridiculous too expensive I disagree. I actually think it's a really, really strong investment. Take them out, take them anywhere, go for a walk. And my old boss used to take us for a walk once a month and we'd have a weekend away and literally that was it. You just walk and she'd give you a question or a challenge and you talk to your peer about it and the stuff you'd come up with by the time you sat down to make dinner together and you did make dinner together, you know? Um, And again, something that was raised today, how many times do you innovate at home, what have we got? Baked potato, a leak. What are you gonna
0: do with that? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make i to make out of baked potato loops, yeah. There you go. Uh, do you think everybody's an innovator or do you think there's certain individuals that it comes naturally to, or can you create an environment where everybody can achieve that? Kind
1: of um, I think everyone's got a bit of innovation in them. I'm not sure everybody's an entrepreneur necessarily. Mm. Um because I don't think everybody wants to work themselves into the into the ground and I don't know very many entrepreneurs that that don't. Um but you know, I um I was really impressed by, um, we, we do see loads of startups, as you can imagine. One one of the uh, best that that I saw recently was a um, small startup based out of Romania. And um, the guy was a carpenter and he lost his job and he was looking for something to do. And he started to make um, experience boards. Now, an experience board is for a child, sort of one or two years old, but it's got everything you can imagine on it. Plugs, locks, switches, you know, zips everything you want them to experience but without hurting themselves Mm. is on this board and um my wife actually just showed it me and i reached out to the guy and had a conversation with him and um and he very kindly gave our uh one for his birthday and um you look at it and just think that's amazing now that was somebody that that he wasn't necessarily an innovative individual but actually the innovation came from nowhere because it came from pressure so the environment around that actually changed his entire approach to things. He's got a skill, but he was pointing out that there was no work for that skill. Mm-hmm. So where do I redeploy it? And I think that's the bit that I find really exciting. You know.
2: And do you find um, you were saying earlier about uh, academics and that uh, you know they come up with, you know with lots of great ideas, but sometimes maybe don't have the commercial acumen. How? <laughs> How open are they, you know, in your experience, and you, you obviously talk to and invest in lots of startups, what's the sort of ratio of people being open for that commercial guidance and those that are like, you know what, we've got our path, we're going to go down that path. What? What's the, because obviously some of them are really good with the idea and bringing the idea to life, but maybe, you know, you only have to watch Dragon's Den and, you know, you can see the ones that, yeah, they're, for all the money in the world, they're going to be a success because they kind of brought it all together and the ones that have got a reasonably great idea, but they're not necessarily great at presenting it. And then you also see some that actually pay people to go and present it as as well. What's the, what? what's in your experience, you know, how open are are, you know, um, innovative people to, to actually taking that help that where they've got a shortfall? So I suppose...
1: If I shot from the hip, I'd probably say 25% are open, 75% aren't.
0: Okay, me again. Just jumping in to talk about one of the processes that we often get asked to automate, which is the processing of supplier invoices, also known as accounts payable automation. So what does that mean? Well, most businesses receive invoices from their suppliers, and a lot of businesses still have people that are manually reviewing those invoices, making sure that they're correct, making sure they're accurate, and then manually rekeying them into a finance system or an ERP system. Well, our solution can automate that process. So typically an invoice will come in, we'll use capture technology to understand what's on that invoice. We'll then match that data up against good receive note to make sure that we've received the product. We'll match it up against purchase order data to make sure that somebody has placed an order for that product. And ultimately, if we can match that up, we can automatically push that into an ERP system or finance system. And nobody has to touch it. How good does that sound? If there are exceptions, if there are things that need to be checked, that's fine. We can use digital workflow to push that to somebody to eyeball it and say, is this correct or does something need to change? Ultimately, though, that can then be pushed again into an ERP system or a finance system. This is about making your life easier. It's about making operations as quick and as efficient as possible. And we do that all the time. If that sounds interesting, then get in touch. That's enough from me. Back to the podcast.
1: But, but then I'd say over 75%, 25% will soften and start to engage with you. Um, but I think there's a, and I suppose different people will have a different perspective on this, but I think within the, the entrepreneurial space and the innovation space, I I often find that you really need a very switched on CEO and a very switched on CTO to come together under the guise of a really, really switched on CMO is is kind of where the, the CMO can be chief marketing officer or it can be chief, um, uh, sorry, or a chief commercial officer f- framework within that. Um, I think the difficulty is, and this is a straight up point, I might be, I, I mean, you know, I went to university, I got a degree, et cetera, et cetera, but there is an arrogance to the amount of letters that come after your name. And there's this point is me saying there isn't. There is. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not about the fact that people think they are necessarily better than you because you don't have a formal education to the level that they do. But I think as you are educated and you do, for example, your master's and then you extend your PhD and, and what have you, I think there is a expectation that because they know something to such a finite level, but you know something that isn't really academic, academically backed, that you cannot understand it well enough in order to tell them about it. And I think that's the truth of it. So if you have 20-year sales experience, but you don't have, you know, 53 letters after your name, and I say it in jest, but I mean it sadly, it's rare to get somebody who's really academically gifted to buy into it. So I think then you need interpreters. So in the same way that if you have, you know, in the, in the engineering space, you've got a brown coat wearing 20-year experience superstar engineer, on the right-hand side, you've got a data scientist. They don't understand each other, mainly because there's no one in the middle educating the value. So, for example, an engineer will go, I can look at a blade or an engine and tell you why it's not working. A data scientist is saying, if you give me the data plus your knowledge so I can pick out those points that you would look for, I can get an algorithm to do the same thing. But it's about valuing equally. Yeah. And I think that's a cultural thing as well. <clears throat> um, it's not the academic's fault and it's not the non-academic's fault, but... If you were to look into, into the entrepreneurial world now, I think there's, there's a, quite a mix, you know, um, we were talking about, um, Tesla, for example, and, and I was talking about, you know, how do you, you talk, you know, you think about, about Tesla or the, the PayPal mafia as they were, which obviously where, uh, Elon Musk came from, these guys have switched on cookies and they know what they're doing. Um, but at the same time, they're also not afraid to make decisions and live or die by them. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes the difference. Whereas I find that a lot of academics don't get out of the academic environment. They stay in the university. And that's fine because you can launch startups from university, but I don't necessarily think you are able to accelerate them at real rates and pace unless you get outside. That's mm. just my my opinion. But I do, you know, I sit there and I think, when I thought about, um, somebody was asking me about how do you, how do you influence shareholder value really quickly? Have you got an example that you can look at? And um, we had a challenge when I was at Rolls-Royce around, could we do something that changed the shareholder value? And we actually created something called the Aletheia Framework, which was an ethical AI framework, released it, day release, 2% share price bounce. Went back down, but it went up. So the point was made. But we did that because we followed um, Elon Musk. And we looked at what he'd done and when he'd made big impacts. And actually... If you look at his share price, which was at about $500 at the time, and look at what he did very quickly afterwards, he released the IP. Do you remember when he released all of the IP to develop mm-hmm. the marketplace? Yeah. And said, I won't sue anybody, <clears> but throat> it throat> develops throat> the actual market. Went to 1600 I think, flex. So the, the share price impact. Now, he wouldn't have asked anybody. Probably did it over a tweet, right? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> yeah. So So the fact is... That to me was really interesting when you watch a, a quite an academic, but quite a fearless leader go and do something. That I thought that is incredible and quite inspiring. But at the same time, look at some of the other damage that's that's happened. Look at the share price in Tesla and how it sort of failed when he went into Twitter. So there's, there's different things that you can do. And I think he, you know, he's at the pest of a social media sort of furore as well. But I think there is real value in having. You know, academic and non academic links brought together. And I think that maximizes the value of any organization. Um, because I think my father put it, he always said to me when I was at university, you're going to have to carry the heavy bag, which ultimately meant go out and sell to start with, learn how to sell whatever you're going to sell. In my case, it was sell a mobile phone, learn how to do that and learn how hard it is at the bottom. You know, mm. go to work in a factory, which I did at university. You've got to learn everything yeah. before you can then go on and try and do something different
0: i think sales. you've never heard me say this before but i think sales is an underrated skill in tech actually in, in general i think and i think it's looked down upon actually it, in a little bit and it really shouldn't be in my experience over the last
1: couple of years it's it's such a crucial part of any business well particularly tech uh, what's really interesting for me is the way in which lots of training companies came out of media companies to teach you how to sell over teams. Mm. And I just thought to myself, really? So people don't know how to sell normally face-to-face, but it wasn't about that. It was about your positioning in front of a screen, the way in which you hold yourself, what you're dressed like, you know, the lighting in the background, all of these different things that would improve the way you sell. So when people talk about COVID being sort of a massive impact on the economy, yeah, but again, like I said, about 2008, 2009, when you're challenged, what do you do? Well, the entrepreneurs come up with something different to sell, mm. yeah. Yeah. you know, a different- Innovate straight away. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I do, I do agree with you. People people think that, that selling is talking and it's not. No. Report building is really difficult. And, you know, being able to do those things, they're soft skills that many people just cannot get their heads right.
0: So if, if Rishi rings you tomorrow and says, I want you to be my minister for innovation to make UK PLC the, the great innovator in the world, what are you going to do? What's, what's your plan? He so, didn't
1: prep you for that, didn't he? Then, so you're aware of the announcements coming out tomorrow about this. But anyway, <laughs> uh, um, So do, do you know what? We, we talk about levelling up and I think the reality is levelling up needs to be taken more seriously and, and enacted faster. Um, and when we talk about levelling up monies being used below the M25, I think it's laughable. And then it's defended by people like Michael Gove, who... I won't go any further but the, the point <laughs> is i actually do think that we need to be able to encourage organizations to step beyond london to step beyond manchester and and move you know beyond that sort of microcosm i think that's the first thing i think the um the second thing is i think a lot of the bids and the funding that i see won are they're one on the fact that the bid's shiny and you've got a really good bid team to come in and do it. And I think that in itself is flawed. I think there needs to be real investment and real research into what's trying to be done. And I think actually you'd find that organisations who are trying to do something innovative or trying to do something that's going to make SMEs prosper in regions beyond Manchester, Liverpool, London, and, and even Leeds, for example, mm. I think they'd get greater levels of um, investment and buy-in. Um, I also think that the... SME sector which is let's be honest if if SMEs fail we fail it's Mm, that you get the multinational right so I think the SMEs need to be given more courage to be able to invest in innovation to be able to invest in upskilling because I think upskilling of their staff is absolutely critical because I think we've also got issues around you know brain drain of our own and I think we need to start to focus on that so I think we need to look at how we develop our own people I think Digital skills and digital culture is critical. We talk about it extensively. You know, the House of Lords talk about it. The government talk about it. They say they're trying to do things about it. But I think they need to think more around how they can work with corporate technology businesses to work and help SMEs. And I think there are a number out out there, a number of different things. Things like Skills Bill from IBM is really, really, you know, really exciting because you can go on there and literally train yourself to develop. Great. But how many SMEs know about it? Mm, very few. How many SMEs would be willing to give their members of their teams who are 5, 10 deep a few hours a day to go and do it so they're going to have to invest in that. So how can you somehow, and I know we're looking at tax breaks and so on, but I think there's more to be done. And I think... There needs to be in my humble opinion more sme based representation within the think tanks and you know the advisory groups that sit into government mm. um they listen too much to the multinationals who are too slow they move too slow they're very bureaucratic and they don't have entrepreneurs sat on their boards in the main mm. you know um Pre- protectionists i think it is you know <clears throat> one of the 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 interesting thing for me at Rolls-Royce specifically was when I sat down and I'd made a point to some senior people in the business that I felt that our biggest threat was never going to come from our existing competitive environment. It will come from a tech company that's got billions to burn. you know. And I said, what about a Google coming in just taking us over? What about Apple? What about? And everyone thought it was laughable, but I actually still see that as a reality because why wouldn't you come into an engineering environment and say, okay, how do we digitize all of this? Mm. Get rid of all of you people. I'm going to ingest everything that's in your brain and I'm just going to deploy it in models. Well, super compute capabilities are coming. Quantum is coming. Who's going to be the leaders of that? Well, it's not going to be a Rolls Royce, is it? So from my perspective, I think, you know, looking at the technology partners, but not on the basis of we're going to run our systems across this as a technology partner that can help you to, to move forward. In that cultural digital revolution is really critical.
0: So, should a Rolls Royce be be partnering with a Google or that type of organisation? Are they they too big and they, they need to work with more smaller innovator
1: organisations? <laughs> so, I think the I suppose the honest reality of that is I'm not sure a Google would want to work with them, and that's then <laughs> it's not being derogatory. I mean, Rolls Royce is. It is an amazing organization and the the people that are there are absolutely superstars. They really are. You know, we've got some of the world's best engineers in that organization. Um, But do I think that they could be much, much more efficient, much more advanced with a much stronger technology core? Yes. Um, if If you went to an organization like that and said, we want you to look outside of your core technology vendors or, you know, flip your vendor list on its head and go, rather than number one, let's talk to 19, 18, 17, 16, and see what they can do, would they do it? No. Mm-hmm. And I think that perhaps is is the angle. So is, is a Google the right place to go? Possibly not. But is part of the Alphabet portfolio? Is there somebody in there that could come in and go, we're just going to focus on, you know? Yeah. And there is a part of me that, that sits there and thinks, perhaps that could help. Um, I'm not saying that they're not brilliantly academically linked. They are, right? Rolls-Royce, Bar, only GSK. I would suggest have um, a, a, you know a better uh, academic liaison group. Um, you know they are absolutely fantastic when it comes down to academic engage- engagement and liaison. Do some tremendous research and so on. But I, I just feel that if we talk about a digital revolution in the SME sector and, and how do we it's not about reducing your headcount; it's about making more out of them. Yeah, um, and I think that's a, a, a sort of a leading sort of question that we need to get people to think
0: about. Who, who are the obviously you work with lots of businesses, both big and small. But who are the businesses that you really admire?
1: It's quite it's quite a difficult one in some respects because I think I. Um, you kind of admire small pockets of. So for example, I, I admire the bravery of, um, of some of the thought leaders that sit within Rolls-Royce, for example. But then you'd say, you have to admire Tesla. I've not worked with Tesla direct. We had indirect relationships with them. But that is, yes, you've got Elon at the front end of it, haven't you, in the media piece. But at the same time, you've got an entrepreneur trying to lead an organization on a, on a really thin edge, you know and that that's the piece that i find really exciting because if you think about i mentioned earlier about bureaucracy and not having time we can only get rid of bureaucracy to create time if that makes sense mm. so rather than having a board of 15 people and then you know an executive board and shareholder meeting how do you tighten it up and go we just need to move faster in order to actually develop and i think you'd, you'd have to look at somebody like that to say we just kept going and going and going and going um and i think microsoft interestingly i listened to a, an article that bill gates um wrote and then actually did a bbc interview off the back of it and people talking about you know you people didn't like you when you were at, at microsoft and you were quite aggressive and i sit there and think how is he not going to be because you know people around him are going to be as clever as him and as bright as him yeah and if they get something wrong and he knows it's wrong they're going to be very aggressive in their responses so i think you know they're the types of organizations that i look at and think that's Pretty amazing, mainly because actually the leaders have come out and and sort of started to look at philanthropic ways of deploying their cash. Um, But I think any SME that's got through COVID, round of applause, because I just think that's incredible. You know, Mm. I mean, the Rolls-Royce nearly didn't. Mm. It's that simple and shouldn't have. If they were a SME, they would have failed and been allowed to fail because they were, a, um, you know, they were losing money because their model, which is powered by the hour, i.e. they get paid by every hour a plane is in the air or their engines on that plane. Um, that model doesn't work. Not in a... Not if the planes cost. aren't flying. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, so is, is it the wrong model? Not necessarily. But yeah. the point I make is if they were not a stocks and shares controlled organisation, they wouldn't have been saved. Mm-hmm. So that also comes back to, as a SME, what do you do when COVID hits? Innovate, go online. You know, what are you going to do to keep going? And, and I think that for me is also um, another piece. But education, I think, I hate to say it, but education is, is absolutely critical for SMEs to understand where do you go to get grants? Where do you go to get funding? Where do you go to get skills and training? And where do you go to get opportunity and support? And I think also education around the capabilities that new technologies, digital technologies bring. If you don't understand it, You can't find a challenge that could be solved by it, if that makes sense. Mm.
0: No, I do. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned Tesla. Do you think they'll get caught? Do you think the the Fords and the BMWs and Mercedes will, will catch them in terms of EVs? Or do you think they'll always maintain that? Not always, but for the next 20 years, do you see them keeping head and shoulders above the competition?
1: I think that's a really interesting question. I actually, I'd probably add something to it, which is, you know, I saw BMW's new hydrogen vehicle the other day and I sit there and I think just remember that Tesla in my opinion and and the research that I've ever done it wasn't built on the basis of being you know the leading automotive um mm. business it was built on the basis of taking over home energy control so taking car batteries out of vehicle sticking them in homes which have now got the, te- the Tesla battery wall right so owning the home is massive. You own every home, you you own own the world. Yeah. So, so for me is, is leading the way from the perspective of the, the automotive industry and the EV sector, absolutely the end game, Mm. actually. I don't think it is the start. I think it is. I think the start of a revolution. Do I think though that EV is the answer? No, I don't. I think it's a mix. I think it's part of an ecosystem. I think hydrogen will come. You know, there are hydrogen vehicles. As I say, there's a BMW that's been released and they're testing now. Um, but hydrogen is better for you know, you know, the, the larger vehicles. I like hate for example. Yeah. If you put a, a hydrogen spine down the centre of the country, you're way better way of of actually fueling those vehicles. Um, you're not going to put it in planes necessarily because there are challenges around it for more than anything else. But equally, it's going to be very difficult for long haul, um, you know, a 747 to be powered any other way other than sort of the hybrid fuels that are coming now, which are lower carbon, obviously, you know, benefit in that space. Um, so, so no, I, I don't think it's the end game. Um, I also think something else will come, um, which I think everyone will go... And it, you know, be a bit mind-blowing, um, and that's exciting. I think
2: it always does, doesn't it? Every few years, something comes along. Well, that, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. And and that's that is the exciting thing is that you know, <clears throat> with all these SMEs and you know innovators that are probably at work now, that in a couple of years' time, something will land and it will explode like Tesla did, and you know, and, and move move the dial a little bit further up. And and that I guess that's. The exciting piece for you is is that being in that in that space and supporting uh, and investing in in SMEs that are doing that that you know no day is boring. I shouldn't ima- imagine and and actually every day is you know a, a learning day because you just we're moving forward. You know we always bring up or I always bring up that like our children and what their adult lives will be and yeah. I mean mm. I can't believe you know five
0: years time what will it look like. Yeah, we, we were talking about that. I was at a talk this morning, actually, um, with Russell, a guy called Russell Beck, which was really good. And it, he said that 60% of jobs will not be around in 10 years' time. And that's always, that's in recent history, that's been the kind of trend, which is incredible, 10 years' time.
2: So 60% of jobs won't be around in 10 years' time. Well, will have but changed surely, I was, was going to say, surely yeah. 60% of the current jobs today will have probably evolved to be different and there'll be different technologies and different requirements. Mm. Please say that. Uh,
1: one of the things that I find, I agree with that because I think the, when, when I first became exposed to AI or, you know, multidisciplines that sit under the AI banner, let's put it that way, you start to sit there and go, this sounds amazing. Well, actually it is, but AI is, well, as I say, it's multi So it could be anything from object detection yeah. to, uh, you know, uh, NLP, for example, but None of it works unless you've got data. And none of the data is appropriate unless you've got data stewards. So getting somebody who actually goes in and looks at your data and says, I'm going to de it. Mm. What, really? And I've got to do that? Yes, you have. Right? It's really simple stuff. But actually, it's taxing. It's challenging. So you, unless you've got good data, you cannot start to utilize it. So over the last five years, for example, lots of data organizations have, have risen up that just come into a major multinational and go, where's your data? How would you like to use it moving forward? What are you going to do with it? This is how you need to start to tag it, start to store it, start to gain access to it, start to put it into data lakes. And this is how you'll do it. And that didn't exist. People will say, well, data lakes did. Of course they did. Mm -hmm. But the point is, no one thought about the data that they were ingesting. They were just getting lots and lots and lots of data. But now when you go, okay, what are we going to do with it? You know, Down the road, there's a massive Siemens factory making huge blades. They're going to go onto a wind farm. In a wind farm, what are you worried about? And what are you going to need data for? Bird strike. Really? Yes. Then when you've got a bird strike, you're going to shut the system down. Then you're going to have to go and look for micro cracks. Okay, you're going to use a drone. Didn't have them before. Let's send a drone. Drone takes high-res imagery. We're going to pull that data in, and then we're going to look at those cracks using specific algorithms. We're going to have to get the data in a certain format to allow us to find it. These things didn't exist. So whilst we lose sixty percent of jobs, we're creating sixty percent mm-hmm. because yeah. technology is changing, but also the way in which we analyse what we do changes. You
2: know? and do you think, Mark, that because it's one of the things that we talk about with our clients ar- around data, and I question how many take us seriously when we when we're saying about you know you need to have clean data and needs you know because if you've got clean data, the solutions systems will work efficiently. Do you think corporates, but you know? Um, companies, you know, medium sized companies as well, take that seriously? Or are they still
1: on that start of that journey of actually taking it seriously? I think they take it seriously. Um, but I I still think when when you start to go, we're going to get value out of data, I think there are many, many organizations that are led by the CFO who's saying, how much is it going to cost us to clean it? This much. And the CFO goes, I just don't see the return. And the naivety of that is, well, actually you won't see the return because until you've got the data, we can't show you the return because we can't simulate it. So what do you want us to do? And I think that to me is, is actually quite scary because from the data that you get, you can improve the way you do what you do today, therefore improving your margin, therefore improving your position which makes the CFO happy, which never makes any sense because you sit there going, give me some money to make you some money. No, why not? Because your investment thesis isn't strong enough. Why isn't it? You know, get chat GPT4 to write it for me. you probably swallow it. You know, it's <laughs> one of those things, isn't it? But it's, but uh, yeah, it, it is, it is a challenge. And I think, um, and it's more than data as well. It is about, do you understand if you've got data in a specific form that we can do these things with it? And actually we can extend beyond that. And and it's sometimes about realizing that you, not you haven't, but they aren't educated. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, it's just giving them exposure to actually what can be done with data. So that I think is a, is a difference. You know, um, I worked with, and I'm still a huge fan of an organization that looks at, um, microbiota. So in the gut, it's so the microbiome. And, you know, there are more microbiota in your gut than there are stars in the sky, right? That's a huge amount of data. Um, in order to be able to look at that type of data, you have to use a knowledge graph, which is ultimately what the back end of Google sits on. And then you go and interrogate it. And the bit that's really exciting about what they do is, and you're talking about swathes of data, like massive, massive amounts of data, but they're saying that they believe that theoretically speaking, if you understand the microbiota in the gut, you can improve the efficacy of the treatment of a cancer. Yeah. Now that's because you change the gut and the flora in the gut. Mm. And you can do that through a number of different things. But the the point is you change it, and then that means that you will react to it in an 80% specific way rather than a 20%. And that makes a massive difference. We can save lots and lots of lives by doing it. But You've got to go and interrogate the data to see if you can find a pathway in the first instance, you're talking about a multi-billion pound potential organisation there, but that took a neuroscientist and a superstar AI uh, data scientist to go, come on, let's go and try. So they did, and they, they started to work with the MND Association and others. But what they've done is amazing, absolutely amazing. It's an invested startup called um, Biocortex. And what they've done is brilliant, but if the CFO had made that decision. They wouldn't be doing anything. Yeah. So, you know, and, and when I talk about academics, you know, you think about that those two guys are superstar academics, but actually both of which have seen the potential opportunity um from a commercial perspective. As well.
0: somebody's got to paint the picture to the CFO, yeah, what the art of the possible is if they can do that foundational work. You know, someone's someone's job is it to, to paint that picture and, and demonstrate the business case. And and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about
2: um where the person with the commercial head comes on yeah. or the intermediary as Mark said that comes in and goes look Mr CFO Mrs CFO this you know th- th- this is your potential and this is the journey we need to travel on to to get there yeah, and yeah. it's that having that person in the middle that can can put bring all the dots together to go that's the picture that you you need CFO to make that decision that actually it's worth that initial investment because the returns are going to be even more than your spreadsheet you currently have.
0: Yeah, we're back to sale again, aren't we? Um, I wanted to ask about AI actually because I think mean, AI has obviously it has been around for for many, many years and with chat GPT end of last year, blew up. Are you, the thing I've struggled with is seeing proper use cases where businesses are getting proper value out of AI. And part of the reason they're not is because of... Data and yeah. et etc. But are there areas that you're you are seeing AI being used in in organisations and adding proper value? Yeah. What? Yeah. yeah. About so AI? so
1: if we if we look at um, if I took you back to the OCR piece that we talked about to begin with, yeah. yeah? So if you think about PDF optical uh, optical character recognition, structured data interrogation, you interrogate, you make savings. And then it allowed the team to go and build a digital twin and then look at how they use AI to analyze that digital twin and then create a replicant and then ultimately make savings. Fantastic. But other parts of it are, you know, if you look at the financial services sector, lots and lots of analysts are starting to use AI because they're going, we've got 50 years worth of trend data of markets, is it not possible to ingest it and run an algorithm across it to see where or not and whether or not we should be investing and how, and just to see patterns. And that's ultimately what it is. So, I mean, just my own experience at, um, predominantly at Rolls-Royce, I must admit, tremendous amount of success out of the um, AI disciplines. Some failure though, as well, you know, looking at things like, for example, um, I mean, predictive maintenance is one that is hugely based on AI. Um, And predictive maintenance has been tremendously successful. Um, But you can also look at really simplistic um, models as well that you think, oh, actually, you have to get somewhere first. I'll give you an example, which you probably won't believe happened. But within within Rolls-Royce, if you can imagine, you fly from uh, Heathrow and you fly out to Singapore. And when you get to singapore there's, there's a, the engine's taken off a side and it's sent through to an mro site which is basically a maintenance no mm. overhaul site and when it gets there the process of it being um taken through that maintenance process you would think would be digitized etc cetera, etc cetera, but it's quite manual it's quite basic to the to the point of historically it was written on a board when the engine arrived and people then didn't add that into a system they wiped it off And one of the teams within Rolls-Royce went, why don't we go out and digitize it, (laughs) which they did. And one of the things it it did is it was able to go, so hold on, if we are able to ingest the data, we know when the engine arrives, we also then can predict what type of... Um, overhaul it needs, what type of service, and the predicted parts that it's going to need, so predictive maintenance. Why is that beneficial? It means you've got the stock in. Mm -hmm. It's a very expensive part, and you're able to go, we're going to do all of these in a day because we know they're the same thing. And you might go from having an engine off wing for 80 days down to 40 days. You imagine having an engine off a wing for 40 days a long, long time, Mm -hmm. right? So huge savings. Now, that was about the very early stages. When we were talking about cleaning your data, this is about capturing it. So you capture it in a way, in a clean manner, so you can ingest it to run algorithms across it to find patterns to reduce the actual time it's in the MRO. And it might be something simple, whereas you go, based on this data, we know that that needs to be brought in, right? Might be that piece. So so I think AI in the lightest sense is used in those environments. But the most interesting and exciting bit that I ever saw was when we, we tested the AI team against the engineers when they were looking at... Um, blades and blade corrosion. And the engineer was going, well, it's basically down to this and this is what we need to do. Whereas the AI team went, hold on a minute. And they went, they went to the Alan Turing Institute. They went to the, um, I forget what it's called now, but the Global Weather Data Center. So they were able to pull data from all over the place. They were able to get <laughs> pollutant data from above places like China, which I was just amazed by. And they brought all of the data together ran an algorithm through that that pulled out different pieces and told them exactly what was causing the, causing the blade, blade corrosion. Not just, well it's just <laughs> some sound. Not 30 years of experience yeah. over like. But it, but the difference being was when they came together and the engineer said, actually think about this as well and think mm. about this which is the 30 years of experience. Dynamite. Absolutely mm. dynamite. And that's the bit that I was talking about right at the beginning around culture. That, that digital culture piece, getting somebody that's now, I think it's unfair to say an engineer is analog, but let's say they're analog in this instance, and let's say a data scientist is digital. In the middle, you need an interpreter, which might be an organization like yours, but in my world, it was a business analyst. Yep. Somebody that could go, I see the problem here, but I can also see it there. The and that's what it looks like to you both. And just sharing it, because it's like building a product and only having a product team, not an engineering or dev team, because mm. they, you know, the product team would just draw I don't know, the most amazing flowery thing you've ever seen in your life. And then the dev team go, well, I can't put that into an <laughs> application. I not Great right idea. but it yeah, mm-hmm. looks lovely, but yeah. Computer says no. Computer says no. Yeah, exactly. So I think, so that's, that's kind of the other, the other areas. But I think you, you have to, the, the best piece of innovation that came that never went anywhere for me was um I worked with, at Rolls Royce and 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 since, um, I met a guy called Rob Desborough who is one of the founders of Seraphim um, Space Camp and Seraphim Capital. And Rob and I talk intermittently about some of the amazing things he's finding, you know, in the in the sort of space tech space. And um, he said, "Have you thought about zero gravi- gravity manufacturing?" And I was like, "Absolutely not." Go on, tell me more. <laughs> so he was just saying, he said, "Well." Zero zero gravity manufacturing means that you, and and this may not be right. So if any scientist (laughs) writes in and say, Mark, this is not factually correct. I apologize. But in my my simple senses, it was like, if you manufacture at zero gravity, you can rejig the molecular format or structure of whatever it is you're making. And therefore, it's slightly different to the product prior to that. Now, if you do that in the pharmaceutical space, you've got a patent lifetime, let's say 20 years. And let's say it's... 3 billion a year that you're going to generate revenue from. So that's 60 billion, isn't it? Something like that. So you're going, okay, we can do it for another 20 if we manufacture the second iteration under zero gravity. So I thought this was like absolutely amazing. <laughs> and um I went and actually had a conversation with with the um RD um community within GSK and, and I was like poo-poo. They were like, that's no, we're not interested. And I found that an absolute, and actually it was one of the reasons I ended up stepping away from GSK in the end, because I just thought, if you're not interested in that, that's, that's like the coolest thing because you're looking outside of your own sector. Um, but it it was, it was what it was, but that was one of the the things you look at and think that's amazing. Proper innovation though. Yeah. Mm. But it, but it, when you think about it, was it really, or was it just actually saying, do you know what? I work within haulage, mm. I'm going to go and have a little look at what they do in, I don't know, aero haulage to see if it's any different. Mm. slight same space but slightly outside if you know what I mean or a different sector even you know and I think
0: we're back to kind of eco bringing businesses together sharing knowledge across vertical sectors different sectors yeah. bringing best practice which I think is hugely valuable yeah but, Agreed. all right last couple of questions for me one because I said I'd ask you it, and I will Uh so we talked about FANG stocks off air uh, and one of the things we debated in the past was obviously if you wanted to make money in the stock market over the last 10 years then you should have invested in the Fang stocks up until about a year ago and then they dropped off a cliff. So is that the beginning of the end for those organisations or do you think actually they're going to recover and take back off again and people are going to make loads of money out of them again? What's your thought?
1: So yeah, so this, this is a question that I've got to be honest was answered by somebody I know better than, better than I can answer it. But um, what he brought my attention to was he was saying that if you think about the way in which many of those organisations have generated revenues, think about it from a marketing perspective rather than a, um, a specific focus on what they were trying to do to start with, what was their core business. Yeah. So if it was community or if it's something else, they've ended up doing marketing because they've created a community in which they can market to. And one of the things that we talked about was, isn't it amazing though, when you build a profile or a persona of an individual to allow you to have bespoke marketing methodologies that land in their space all day, every day. And anything they touch or anything they look to, you know, I mean, cookies and the way you use them is changing now. But the fact is, historically, you could have all that data and understand exactly how to get that that customer for your client and therefore generate tremendous marketing revenues. But he then started to, to talk to me about things like, in Australia at the moment, they are putting a lot of money, Medicare are, into creating a um, application that takes down a single medical profile. Why? Because anyone you go and talk to is going to have access to that data. And if it's, for example... Um, excuse me, you go and see a dentist, but actually you've got something that's an oral challenge. You go back to the dentist and they say it's cancer, right? Which is really, really frightening. Having the data to allow them to act really quickly is really helpful. But from a government perspective, having a single application with all of your debt records on it, whether it be in this instance, COVID, your passport, driving license, all of the passwords you need to access government bodies, you know, whether it be car tax through to what you name it, pensionable data, is going to become really really important but at the same time the consumer wants control of that data so we also talked about tokenization of your own consumer data so i want to release a, an album it's not happening but let's say i could <laughs> right? onto um i don't know TikTok or uh, youtube i want to be credited with that and i want to be able to generate revenue every time somebody watches it so we're going to start to think about consumer ownership of data And interestingly, I I met with a founder of an organization that got to half a billion users, a guy called Jack Bowman, um, who's a serial entrepreneur and, and, um, you know, half a billion users is massive. And he did that with an application called Handle My Health. Now, he's now looking and talking to members of the House of Lords about how do we have our own UK ID platform, single ID, all of our data digitally held. Right? It's really difficult to do, really challenging. People have tried to do it nhs covid app I had a go in mm, it yeah but it's kind of how, how are we going to do that so one of the things he's trying to develop at the moment is a single sign-on that gives a consumer all of the control so you sign into a into an application through um uh, the gdx platform and you ultimately are allowed to give access to anybody in a, in a within reason so you could go i've got a gym i'm going to give them access nutritionist I'm going to give my dentist, I'm going to give um, my supermarket or my HelloFresh account. Now, why is that relevant? Well, it creates a persona for you. And then if you've got medical records that sit there as well, so they know exactly what, you know, um, you can, cannot eat, you uh, cannot do from a running perspective or a physical, you know, it might be musculoskeletal data, whatever it is, um, you know. That's the type of thing that would be perfect, but you could have a, a legal, a medical, and a personal level to this sort of data, which I think, long story short, that could take away that historical working structure, which is fine if that makes makes sense. Because you give the consumer the data after twelve months, they could switch off the API or they could reconnect it, and suddenly you're in a different place. Because you imagine, and we mentioned earlier, you go on to yeah, you have a um, a, a diet. And you want to go on a diet, but you've got a PT and a, and a dietitian or a nutrition who are advising you, and you don't give them access to the fact that you go to Starbucks every morning for the biggest coffee you've ever had with cream and everything. But imagine if you did, mm. right? And then suddenly, so you've got your Starbucks account, you've got your um, HelloFresh account, and they can say, actually, you're allergic to that. And that's one of the biggest problems you've got. So why are you bloating or whatever it might be? But if you could have all that data in one place, you could make those recommendations, but they can make recommendations back. So when you go into a supermarket and you've got it really switched on, you could walk in and actually you can have an alert on the phone that pops up and says, you're walking past this specific product. That's the one you want. There's that's your the shopping thing. list. There you and
0: go. Facebook, not halfway there to having this already. They've so already got, my, they got, they know more about me than I do. They do
1: indeed. But what, one of the problems that Facebook have got is that they're saying we want the data. So when you turn yeah. around and go, no, I want to give. So Facebook, you can have my data, but as part of the agreement that you've got here, yeah, it means so the the application itself within the application is called my card. So it's like if you, I always call it a digital passport. But if you think about it from that standpoint, if you said my digital passport, I ingest your data because I'm allowing you to to have it, but you can take every piece of data from my other APIs as well. Mm. But would Facebook want to be able to take the data but give the data? Now, they might go, well, actually, we're big enough and fast enough to do more with it than you are. Hmm. But the reality is that consumer's got the control, and that consumer can benefit from that insight.
2: I was going to say, <clears throat> at the moment, what Facebook wants to do is use your data and then monetize it for them. Whereas, oh, is there potential for it actually for you to monetize? Absolutely, yeah. Which you'd think only seems fair and reasonable that, yeah, yeah you've got, you've I've got my data. I'm prepared to let you have it, but there, there's a cost to that. And everybody's like, well, hang on. No, I'm not interested. Well, I'm, I'm making a massive assumption there. but It's know,
1: more
0: likely that I'll have to buy my data back from Facebook. Well,
1: well yeah, absolutely, yeah. Like but, but the reality is, you know, if you think about, um, I think, the regulation in the US called Safe Harbor, which is similar to our GDPR here, You know, you can easily write a letter to their chief data officer and say, I don't want you to have any of my data. Mm, So get rid of it. That's the, that's the realities of it. Allegedly but then they say well actually we need to hold it for certain reasons and so on and so forth so there's ways there are ways around it but i think to your point if you can if you can start to monetize your own data look how they monetize it mm, yeah, so yeah why can't we yeah yeah so <clears throat> that's that's for me if somebody wants to advertise to me fine but pay me the advertising revenues yeah, and, that's <laughs> yeah. and
2: i think on that but for me you know because we did one uh we, we did a pod a few months ago where we we were getting into that area and part of it i found intriguing exciting another part I was like I'm not sure I want you know you to have all of that 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 data because and and part of it Mark was around I don't want to be peppered yes I like golf yes I like running yes I like this and that but just peppering me all the time with the same old things you know and we were talking about like music as well a couple of weeks ago mm. it, sometimes it's just like a change sometimes I just want something that I've not experienced or I've not thought about to pop up and I go do you know what that's you know i follow some i follow some stupid thing on um instagram it's like innovation something it's amazing some of the things that you see on it i would never normally come across and i'm like that's if we went you know if it, if it goes as far as that probably won't ever get to see that because it's no oh, john you like this this and this and here's the latest golf club and you know it great S- sticking your echo
0: chamber of yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and, and last question, Mark. Um, so the, the, the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace Today. So cast your mind forward 10 years. What what does the workplace look like in 10 years' time, do you think? Is, is there
1: a workplace? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got a funny feeling we're going to go backwards in a way. and i I really do i think the um you know you look at things like we work and the environments where we we sort of crave for human engagement Mm. i'm not saying that we necessarily need it when i was driving here this morning i was saying to my wife you know you you travel i'm stuck in traffic i've really want to come but the point is what a waste of time yeah but and i, I mean the travel not not yeah. being here um, but the point <laughs> i make is um the point, to clarify. it's all right yeah. um but the point i make is w- it, that is wasted time but actually mm. how do you better enjoy and create a social sphere around work in the way that i think 30 years ago we did have mm-hmm. you know and i would take you back to you go to work you work nine to five and everyone had a beer after work and everyone socialized and actually The environment was different. And you sit there and think a lot of the ideas that we now talk about as innovation and entrepreneurialism came out in a pub. Mm. right and it, they did yeah i mean we don't have any pubs anymore so you can't go there now we have WeWorks with a bar and what have you which is kind of okay it's a pub mm. it isn't any different so we, we seem to be going full circle we're just calling it different things um so i think in a weird way i know you're going do you think there's going to be spaceships flying to and from work i do think there'll be air taxes and i do think we'll have a totally different transport structure if that makes any sense but um i actually think the working cultures will change massively and i think we will I think we will go back to a space where we choose to go to the office, not every day, but we'll choose to go. And I think the office environment is going to get further and further away from the traditional and closer and closer and closer, and closer to a more of a cultural sort of um, um, village type experience. If that makes any sense to anybody, yeah, a The bar. Office is going to be a bar, yeah. A, I love oh, this. For example, I don't, I don't know, but oh, I love the sound of that. Yeah, but I honestly do. I think that that will be the change, but. You know, I think from a, an innovation and a, and a change perspective, I think we are, we're naively flying ourselves. And I say flying because it tickled me um, when, you know, I used to go to things like Mobile World Congress years and years ago. Um, and we used to have something called Wes when I was at Research in Motion, which is now BlackBerry. And when I saw people on LinkedIn going, yeah, I'm here looking at the new tech, I just thought I cannot believe that everyone is there talking about sustainability and you've just sent thousands of your representation <laughs> over to Europe on a plane, unless they jogged, which they didn't. <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've seen. And it really is. And I just sit there and think, I know people will say, yeah, but you've gotta be able to do things face to face. Of course you have. But how many of you really need to go and advertise things that if they're that good, believe me, your marketing team should be able to get me to recognize it to that yeah. point with targeted marketing. You, you you don't need to do that. And. Mm-hmm. I just, and there were, I, I mentioned, you know, actually on, a, on another thing that I was doing and, and I was sat there going, am I just being a bit naive? You know, everyone wants to get back on a plane, but they kind of do. Mm. We kind of, we're inherently bought into the fact that we need to travel, you know, and there's lots of organizations, and I'm sure we've all worked for them, where you've got your um, teleconferencing suite, and you go into it, and no one ever uses it. And they're massive with <laughs> all the tech in the world. And you sit there thinking, why don't we just do it on WhatsApp video? Because that would be easier. We can mm-hmm. get loads of people on it. It's just ridiculous. But they're the bits that I just find really frustrating. What's the point of us pretending we're going to do all this sustainability and, and green? And, and it's kind of when you're just going to send your teams on a plane and do that. It's just mm-hmm. nonsense stick them in a room and actually get to do something more constructive
0: love it mark i could sit and talk to you all day absolutely i won't keep you thank you so much for coming on really appreciate it yeah brilliant
1: thank Thank you. you yeah great to meet you guys